The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my honor and pleasure to welcome Rose Hayden-Smith, also known as the Victory Grower. She is a U.S. garden historian. She leads the University of California's Strategic Initiative in Sustainable Food Systems, and she is the author of the book that we are going to be talking about today, titled Sowing the Seeds of Victory, American Gardening Programs of World War One." Rose Hayden-Smith believes that together we can transform the food system and the world one garden at a time. Now, don't be thrown off by the title. Gardening Programs of World War I provides a wealth of information about school, home, and community gardens, past and present, but it also gets into women's history, politics, and visual culture. Rose Hayden-Smith says, My book is not simply about a moment in time. It's about a movement. And I have to say that I heard Rose Hayden-Smith speak in Des Moines, Iowa at a gardening conference where she called on us to be a lot more radical. So we're going to be talking about that, too. But I also want to just let our listeners know that Rose Hayden-Smith received the University of California Davis's Bradford Rominger Award for her work in agricultural sustainability in 2013. In 2011, she was named one of the 30 most influential women in sustainable food systems by the White House Project, and she is also a former W.K. Kellogg Food and Society Policy Fellow, which is how I originally got to know Rose. So welcome, Rose. It is such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I love your radio show, and I love your work. Well, Let's get right into the book, because I have many questions. I think the most important one to start out with is, why did you write this book? Well, I wrote this book because as an extension agent early in my career, I began to see the transformative power of gardens, not only with youth in the school setting, but what happened when youth did that and then began gardening at home and in the community. And then one day in 2002, I stumbled upon an obscure reference to a program called the United States School Garden Army. And I had, of course, been familiar with Victory Gardens. Most people know about the Victory Garden programs of World War II. But through this obscure article written by a man named O.L. Davis from Texas, who actually is not an historian, he's a librarian, I found out about this period in time when gardens were viewed as being vital to national security, where they were institutionalized by the National Bureau of Education as a national effort for school children, and where there was a very high awareness among the government and members of the American public about how food security was national security, and I was hooked. Mm-hmm. And you have a chapter about the school garden movement in this book, which is fascinating, I might add. And I wondered, with so many benefits that we saw of the school gardens, what happened? How did they fizzle out? I mean, I know there's a resurgence now. 
to get more gardens at schools. But what happened in the interim? How did they fade away? Well, I think that they fade away during times when we're not in periods of national transformation or national crisis. And I think that there has been, you know, because of the national testing program and a lot of things have been crowded out of the curriculum. And it's sort of my hope that with these newer efforts to link gardens more explicitly with the school lunch program, that they will prove more enduring. I think that's a very good and promising model. Mm-hmm. there. And that's what I'm sort of hoping and that there may be opportunities with the Common Core for teachers to go back to garden-based learning as a strategy to improve academic performance across the board. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. I too recognize this focus on this core curriculum and that we have to focus on certain subjects, but we have to also gain sight that when we get kids connected to gardens and even physical activity that gardens bring, I just read a report, for example, that simply having school gardens provides this extra time that children are active, and this is the focus, of course, of the Department of Defense looking at, you know, children are no longer fit, and when they right. graduate from high school, they're no longer fit enough to go into the Army, and so this becomes a whole national security issue, and you cover that certainly in your book. But I want to talk a little bit about this link between gardens and national security, because as you also talk about um, later on, and I jumped around in your book quite a bit, but, you know, we talk about how we are selling parts of our food system to, say, China. And you say, you know, that's really not a good idea. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how gardens are related to national security. Absolutely. And I would also like to tell potential readers of the book, Melinda, that it actually doesn't have to be read in a linear fashion. And I encourage people to jump around in the book because the chapters can be looked at as case studies. And here's the deal about outsourcing and selling parts of our food system. You know, food supply is an issue of national security. And I think, again, that when we sell processing capacity to a foreign nation, that's just not sound food policy, in my opinion. And one of the things that I really value about gardens and that was realized in World War One and also even in World War Two, is that when you have gardens of all sizes in all sorts of locations in communities that you increase the resiliency of those communities, not only the food systems, but you improve the health, the the potential to improve the health of people in those communities and to increase food access. These are very important things because when we look at a lot of the geopolitical unrest in the world, when you dig down to the very core of it, yeah, people do want democracy, but people want food. They want bread. And a lot of these issues and the unrest falls out of the inability of people to have access to essentials, things like food. And as natural resources are more depleted as we deal with the climate variability and uh, the extremes in climate and weather events and how that impacts production. We're sitting on a time bomb, and we're seeing that across the globe. And so I firmly believe that having some resiliency 
built into local food systems through gardens is vital and should be a vital part of the national food policy and food strategy. I agree with you. On page 208, this is actually as part of your conclusion statements, you write that Americans need to shift their thinking to an understanding that maintaining a healthy lifestyle is an obligation of citizenship. And that is, of course, after talking about how having access to these healthful foods through local gardens improves mental and physical health. But then you write, what I put in my mouth affects you and our nation. Every food choice matters. That is such a leap, right, when we talk about food and local gardens. This idea that they are actually a component of citizenship, an obligation of citizenship to feed ourselves well, and how gardens can be a part of that. Well, it is a leap, and I have to tell you that single line is the the line of the book that I receive acclaim for and at simultaneously push back against. But I do believe that as we enter an era of national health care, where we're going to have to make tough choices that we need to provide access to people. People need to have access to healthy food. And we need leveling events in our cultural life and our political life to make access to food a national priority so that we can... Health disparities are a very sad fact in American life, and they relate to economics They relate to disparities in food access. We need to level that, but we also need to make good food choices because I do believe that how I nurture my health is as important now as the way that I behave in a civic fashion because I believe that eating is a civic act Mm -hmm. and growing food is a civic act. Mm Well, now I want to go to piggyback on all of this. I want to jump back to page 184, and you know where I'm going with this. Because <laughs> you, I think you were the one that directed me to this quote, which was, I can't really describe what this paragraph or this quote did for me, but if only we could all as a nation get our arms around it. Would you like to read that? It's on... Page 184, and it is a quote from former USDA Secretary Henry A. Wallace, who was at the time serving as the Vice President of the United States. Right, and I would be happy to read that quote because outside of a quote from Abraham Lincoln about basically Americans knowing how to cultivate land and that being an essential part of liberty, I think this is probably the most impactful thing that I've ever read. And so this is what Henry Wallace wrote, as we were entering World War II, 12 days after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, when the U.S. Department of Agriculture convened a national war garden defense conference, the idea that war gardens and liberty victory gardens would be essential to defense in World War II. Food is fundamental to the defense of the United States. On a foundation of good food, we can build anything. Without it, we can build nothing. We want to make sure that everyone in the United States has in his diet enough energy, enough bone, blood, and muscle-building food, enough vitamins to give that feeling of health plus. We want to make sure that our millions are so fed that their teeth are good, 
their digestive systems healthy, their resistance to premature old age enhanced through strong bodies and alert minds. This quote jumps off the page to me as a dietitian because, you know, this is what makes the study of food and human health so exciting. The fact that we really are nourishing not only ourselves, but the strength of a nation. So thank you for including that. I mean, thank you for going through the historical accounts. You write that in order to move forward, we have to look back. We have to have an historical perspective on what we've done. And that's what this book gives us. So I want to thank you for that. But I also want to ask you, when you were writing this book, were there any surprises? There were. And one of the surprises to me was how clear, once I laid out the history, what a clear roadmap it provides for today in terms of policy. And the other thing, too, that was very surprising to me is how I evolved in my thinking. And I remember the moment that you referred to at the beginning of this interview when when I said that fundamentally we're going to have to become a lot more radical. And I would say that from that point, which was probably in 2007 when I said that, and what I think now, I am just exponentially more radical about where I think we need to go with our national food system. And this interplay between the First Lady and Congress right now, as we look at, oh, should we allow a waiver for the implementation of nutrition standards because of cost? Absolutely not. This is a no-brainer. Because on the foundation of good food, we can build anything. This is our moonshot. This ought to be what we're about right now as a nation is building our health and viewing the health of the nation as really the ultimate form of national security and on what you can build prosperity and value and a really good civic society. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you are just joining us, we are speaking with Rose Hayden Smith, also known as the Victory Grower. She is the author of a book that we are talking about at the moment called Sowing the Seeds of Victory, American Gardening Programs of World War One." And Hayden Smith advocates for school, home, and community gardens and for public policies that support a healthy, affordable, sustainable, and accessible food system. Well, Rose, let's talk about this current place we are in history now, and we are facing dire consequences. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said we're really at a pivotal point where we've got climate issues that we're dealing with. We've got a changing in our global food system where we have, we're importing more of our food. We're exporting some of our food. We've got public health problems. And yet I think we probably have barriers to change today that perhaps were not in place in World War One. So the planners of these Victory and Liberty Gardens during that era were probably not up against the same forces that we are today. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit, you know, having this historical view, you know, how we can maybe identify some of those hurdles in your view, but then also how do we get around those? How do we get over those hurdles so that we can truly have a fit and healthy nation? Okay, well, I... I mean, there are barriers, and I think that some of the barriers that we face today are barriers that 
we are creating. And so one of the barriers I think that we've created is our our farm bill. I mean, there are many obstacles just within the farm bill structurally that would prevent some of these things from happening. And when I look back historically and where the nation was at this point, you know, World War One is clearly a watershed moment for the world and clearly a watershed moment for the United States and the size and scope of government before World War One and after World War One are, are quite different. And it's an evolving process, but, you know, you move into larger forms of statism, as I would call them, post-World War One a larger state and more functions within the state. Like in World War One, you create by presidential order a U.S. Food Administration. And so all of a sudden you have a whole new bureaucracy during World War One that emerges that is advocating for changes and, and attempting to manage the food supply from personal consumption all the way up to the commodity level. And so I think that those are some of the barriers. I think that some of the barriers have to do with corporations and globalization and the voluntary nature of standardizing certain things and certain nutritional standards in the food system. I think that there are barriers to gardens in communities depending on what zoning policies might be. And I think that what we need to do is that we need to look around and go, okay, where are the good models for dealing, for example, with zoning and local and community food efforts? And let's take those models that are working and let's replicate them. And I think that we need to be very intentional about cultivating an ethos around the idea of food production and valuing that and teaching people how to do it. Mm -hmm. And I should let our listeners know that in the concluding chapter of your book, you do outline several steps that if one doesn't seem appealing, perhaps another one does. And so we do have a roadmap here for the future, and I greatly appreciate that. I want to talk a little bit about one of the strategies to help communicate the sustainable food movement and how to move forward. And that is with all of the beautiful posters or the propaganda that came along with this gardening movement, right? Right. I I love those posters. I think they're beautiful. And you draw the analogy between the posters of those years to our social media that we have today. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what made those propaganda posters so effective. Okay, well, and I would say, Melinda, that these posters are still effective. Uh When I do blog postings or tweets that link to one of these images or commentary, invariably these are the most followed, retweeted, or visited postings. They still resonate. People cannot believe that the Food Administration poster that I feature in Chapter 4 of my book isn't fabricated from today because on this poster from 1919, it tells Americans to buy more local food. And people go, surely you must have fabricated this. And it's like, no, no, this is from 1919. So I think that visual culture is incredibly compelling. And I think that these posters, they really were created by the finest visual artist of the day. 
So the most famous artists stepped forward and volunteered their services. And what I think is really wonderful is that they really spoke to the plurality of American life. Because what people don't realize is that in many ways, demographically, we had a, a huge percentage of the American population were immigrants in World War One, And so these posters were printed in many, many languages. And so they acknowledged the common interests that people had and the common purpose. And that's where I think their great effectiveness lies is in how they stress common purpose and the ability of the individual action to influence the whole and move everyone forward in a positive way that this was a single act that you could do that would join with the single individual actions of millions of others to create collective change. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite poster? Oh, my gosh. So my favorite posters, I do. So there are a series of children's posters, and probably my favorite posters are the children's posters, and those were created by Magdalene Wright Barney. One of them appears on page 110 of the book, and it's War Gardens Over the Top. That is one of my favorites on page 109, another Magdalene Wright Barney. She was Frank Lloyd Wright's sister, by the way. Oh, interesting. Um, Follow the Pied Piper, Join uh-huh. the United States School Garden Army. I love those posters. My favorite poster of all time appears on page 115, and that is Food is Ammunition, Don't Waste It. And that depicts a beautiful garden basket full of vegetables, and in the background you see American horse cavalry. And I love that poster because it reminds me that one of the strategies that is often overlooked in our nation right now that we ought to be focusing on to help us address food security and food access is to is to reduce food waste Absolutely. and to focus more on food conservation, but simply to reduce food waste. And there's some emerging terrific new programs like out of the USDA and I think the EPA that are looking yes. um, at food waste. Mm-hmm. And food waste and food conservation were big themes in World War One. Right. You know, re- reducing consumption and, and increasing the amount of conserved food. And I do love that poster because World War One was the last old-fashioned war and the first new modern war simultaneously. And that poster sort of depicts that. Mm-hmm. Well, one of my favorite posters is actually on page 194. And it doesn't have a beautiful illustration with it, but I use it in my own presentations, and it simply it has to do with waste. And there are six pieces of advice under don't waste food. So you buy it with thought, you cook it with care, you use less wheat and meat, which I thought was kind of curious, you buy local foods, serve just enough, and use what is left. And I think that some of these messages for conservation and respect, dare I say, for our food, right? because we're not throwing it away. It has such value and meaning. I think they are important to revisit. So I I agree. I agree. And I would have to say that the use less wheat and meat actually to me is it resonated then because of uh, some 
climatic issues, weather events then that resulted in poor grain production in some big grain producing areas like Russia and also because other countries weren't producing as much food during World War One. But also if you look at the report that was issued, I think this week there was a report issued about how much of the grain we produce that goes to feed animals. And so right. that was a strategy during World War One were to have meatless and wheatless days mm-hmm. because because of those things. Sure. Keeping along that same theme of thinking, I want to bring us to page 190 where you're talking about taking a drive with your father along <sighs> California Highway 58. And, you know, sometimes I, too, am struck by bumper stickers, right? They're so <laughs> philosophical. And this one says, that you, it says you were riding behind an older Chevy pickup. Right. And it had the bumper sticker that read, Agriculture is America's oil. Right. And I thought, boy, that's really a a powerful statement. A powerful statement. And that was in 1976. Right, during the oil crisis. Right. And I never forgot that. And it was a really resonant moment. And in ways that made me, that bumper sticker made me uncomfortable but it also made me curious. And years later, when I began researching this topic in history, I realized, oh, okay, so what this person who was, who was a farmer, by the way, was getting at, I think, um, had a, a lot of pieces to it. Like that the way that America, that in some ways we define ourselves by our agricultural abundance, at least we have historically, and the way that agriculture is of such strategic importance to us nationally and the way that we might value it and should value it. Mm-hmm. So it's an uncomfortable topic to think about food as national security and and closing off, sharing food with other people. And I don't advocate that, but what I advocate is making sure that we are protecting assets, and providing access to food for people. That's very important. We just have a few seconds left. Do you want to leave us with a charge? My charge would be that I hope that you'll read the book and that you'll look at the 10 recommendations in the conclusion and that this week that we'll all really consider recommendation four, which is make nutrition particularly childhood nutrition, a national priority really this time, and that we've been dancing around the issue of childhood nutrition for decades and decades and decades and decades, far longer than the span of my life, and that we need to get on this, deal with it definitively once and for all, and make sure that we are providing healthy, adequate nutrition to all of our nation's children. Rose, I want to thank you so much for certainly being my guest, but also for writing this critically important book for the time. The name of the book is Sowing the Seeds of Victory, American Gardening Programs of World War I. Of course, it goes way beyond World War I, and it speaks to today. 
strongly and with good strategies. We've been speaking with Rose Hayden Smith, also known as the Victory Grower, and she is the author of this book. She is a garden historian, and she leads the University of California's Strategic Initiative in Sustainable Food Systems. I want to just let our listeners know, too, that you can visit the website, which is www.thevictorygrower.com, to keep up with this terrific work. And in closing, I want to, of course, thank Rose but also our listeners for joining us and to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri by Dan Hemmelgarn. Thank you so much, Rose. Thank you for having me.